To continue our discussion on the juicy topic of belt, I am joined by voice teacher and trainer of musical theatre and CCM, Amanda Flynn. Amanda has performed in shows like Wicked and Mamma Mia and has held the position of production vocal coach for The Lightning Thief and Be More Chill on Broadway. As a singing voice specialist, Amanda works with injured singers and collaborates with laryngologists and voice therapists and also presents as a voice researcher at conferences across the country. She is the author of So You Want to Sing Musical Theatre, the updated and expanded edition, and is here with me to chat about mastering belt in musical theatre. Here we go. Amanda Flynn, you have been involved in shows like Wicked, Mamma Mia, Be More Chill, and you are married to the composer and lyricist of The Lightning Thief as well, Rob Rokiki. So tell me, what's it like in your household there in New York? Are you like the Von Trapps or do you both kind of reel if yet another musical note dares to sound after working hours? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I will say that we, um, interestingly, we don't really like sing together much. Um, that's not really something we've ever done. You know, we collaborated on Lightning Thief, obviously, but I was working as the vocal coach and, you know, obviously he wrote the show. Um, but, um, you know, our household is certainly very musical, um, mostly from my husband because, you know, he writes at home. And so he's very often writing and, you know, working on music and, um, so we certainly have a, a a musical household, if you will. Um, but you know, when I leave my day of teaching, I don't, I don't, I don't really listen to music. Where I have to sort of make myself do. Like when I get on the train after a day of teaching, I don't want to listen to more singing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So like, I I prefer to read on the train and different things like that. Um, but you know, we have a we have a seventeen month old, almost eighteen month old daughter, and so that actually we actually have been singing together more with the daughter <laughs> than we ever did in our life before you know we never really performed like rarely performed together back when we were performers we never worked together as actors um, but with our daughter we certainly she's obsessed with the guitar so he gets the guitar out and plays for her and so we'll sing with her with the guitar she loves it so you know um, yeah I would say it's certainly a musical household which is what we want our daughter to grow up in <laughs> yeah oh. Oh, so sweet. Well, it's so great to welcome you and to simultaneously actually congratulate you a little early on for what I predict is going to be one of our top listened to episodes here on the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. So no pressure, Amanda. No pressure. Oh my gosh. So much pressure now, Alexa. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. We have had two discussions on belts on this podcast before, one with the lovely John Henney and another with the great Gemma Sugru. And they are regularly on top each time we look at our analytics. So why do you think belt is such a popular topic that we seek out? You know, I think because um, it is probably the most uh, common musical communication and expression that we have in most popular music forms. I mean, musical theater, everything on the radio, you know, I mean, not not everything is belted, but um, it is certainly one of the most common and popular ways of using your voice that people want to learn how to do. And it is fully unrelated to Western classical singing. 
Um, and so I think that um, people often are not given the tools to understand it, to understand how to listen to it, to understand how to teach it. Um, and so people are constantly seeking that information because it is unrelated to Western classical. If you do Western classical training, which is fantastic for Western classical singing, right? But it's not related to this. And so that world of Western classical, you're not going to get the information that you need for belting. And so I think that is one of the reasons that it is um, incredibly popular because people are very, always seeking out um, information and just like any sort of like uh, high intensity, big singing, it's complex. Belting is complex. It's not simple and straightforward, meaning that like there's a lot of variabilities. There's a lot of training that goes in to find nuance in the sound, right? And so I think people are hungry for that information and they're hungry from information from multiple points of view because there's validity in all of those perspectives, right? Um, so I, I think that's one of the reasons is that it is, it's it's like supply and demand. Demand is very high, supply is low. <laughs> supply is getting higher. Um, you know, we certainly are teaching teachers how to teach belting more and we're teaching singers how to belt more, but um, there are still pockets of the voice world where it is not something that is welcomed in. And so people that come from those worlds and then go out, <laughs> they're like, wait, I have to do this thing I have I don't know anything about. So yeah, that, that would be sort of my guess. You know, I think, you know, we there certainly are pockets where belting is still, you know, poo-pooed <laughs> and is still looked on as being something harmful and being something, you know, bad for the voice. But I will say I feel like that is becoming less and less. I think most people, even if they were taught that growing up, they don't really believe it because they see it happening all the time. And they're like, all these people are doing it. If it was really bad, no one would be singing, right? So I think it's more curiosity than it is sort of like, it's terrible and it's bad. It's it's sort of people going, oh my gosh, I didn't get this information in my, in my singing training or my pedagogy training. I need to go seek it out. Or maybe I had very little of it in my pedagogy training, you know, one one unit in a, in a something, but like, I didn't really go to get in the trenches of learning how to teach it because that is, you know, a, a really complex skill. People are probably doing it anyway, without yeah. kind of putting a label on it in their everyday life. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think singers are bringing it into studios, you know, they're coming in and wanting to do it. And, and I think it's, um, you know, uh, a lot of times teachers have to sort of like figure it out on the job, you know, and so I think that's why they go to resources, particularly accessible resources, free resources, podcasts, you know, books that, you know, are not free, but you know, you can you can get for relatively cheap, right? You know, people are looking for those resources that they can consume on their own and on their own time for a very small amount of money, um, so that they can learn more about it. What do we what do we truly need to know about the belting roots and what has kind of been misunderstood about that? Yeah. You know, I think for me, um, anytime I'm talking about belting, I, I think it's really important that we talk about the origins of belting and that we talk about where it came from because you know, like I've sort of already mentioned, is that it's it's not an offshoot of Western classical singing. Um, it is um, a a type of singing and a type of sound production that comes from 
the music and the communication of the global majority. We see this type of music in indigenous communities all over the globe. Um, if you look at Indian classical singing, that is all bottom up singing and training. Um, if you look at, you know, Hawaiian indigenous music, African indigenous music, North American indigenous music, you, you, you hear these sounds being made. And that is really the origin of belting, right? And so we can sort of, we can sort of, you know, trace the roots um, into um, American sort of like African spirituals, African-American spirituals, which turns sort of into more blues singing, right? You know, I'm sort of giving a truncated, but you know, if we if we really want to look at belting as we know it, we we can really go back to um, black women um, blues singers, right? So you know, our Ma Rainey, our Ida Cox, right? All of these women, uh, Bessie Smith, all these women who were taking these calls and these cries and these speech like sounds, and and they were giving them, uh, you know, they were giving them you know, grit and growl and heart and emotion. And it was becoming, you know, it was a totally different way of using your voice, right? And that is built from just sort of the cultural connection of the roots of those sounds. Then white women started co-opting that sound for vaudeville, right? Because we're looking kind of around, you know, the early 1900s. Um, you know, white women were like, that sound is cool. And they were like, we can use our voice like that. And then it started happening. And then then we see it started to make its way to Broadway. We have Ethel Merman belting things out. Um, and around the Ethel Merman time, is really when the word belt became associated with that sound quality. Um, it was a boxing term before that that meant to knock somebody out. And so um, around this time, someone started saying, oh, they were belting out a show tune, right? Because it was this big pop of a sound, right? Kind of like a punch, right? Um, and so, you know, Ethel Merman gets attributed to this belt sound all the time. And while she might have been one of the first people to do it on Broadway, right? On one of those theaters in the context of a Broadway musical, she certainly did not create the sound. Um, and so I think understanding that history um, is important, um, one, because we have to recognize that it is um, not it was it, this was not a sound created by white people on Broadway. This is a sound that has been built from um, cultures across the globe. And I think understanding that helps us go, okay, this, there's no mention of Western classical singing when we're talking about belting. If we really look at the history of it, it has nothing to do with Western classical singing. That doesn't mean that you can't sing Western classical music and also belt. Of course you can. But I think that that's where people get so confused with belting is that when they have a Western classical lens on, there's a lot of things that just don't line up, right? There certainly are things that translate, right? Of course, there are things that that are helpful for singers, <laughs> no matter what you're singing, right? Certain concepts, right? But I think this is where really understanding how the voice works, really understanding the anatomy, the, the physiology, really understanding the biomechanics. I think that's sometimes the missing piece in pedagogy programs, right? We talk a lot about anatomy, but we really have to talk about how it's all working. Um, but, you know, I think that's when we can really start to understand how the voice can be used to make all these different sounds, right? I think it's important because when we look at it, when we take Western classical principles and apply them to belting, some some might match, but many won't. And then that can, con I think, gets confusing and can make people kind of bristle um, at having to understand that that we're doing something really quite different. I watched your course that you did for Voice Study Centre on an exploration of belting, where oh. you shared that you get, and I'm good, just going to quote you here, a little oh salty, oh <laughs> a little salty when as a teacher of belt, <laughs> you're asked to define what it is. So I'm not going to do that, mainly because I want to be your friend. 
<laughs> so I will not be mad if you ask me that question. It's just look, it's something that I find so fascinating. It's really, yes. you know, it's not that I really get salty. I really don't. I never get mad when people ask that. But I, I do know. find it interesting that anytime we're talking about belting, one of the top questions is what is belting? When no one asks a classical singer, what is classical singing? Do you know what I mean? No one's ever asking to like define a sound in a sentence. But yet when it comes to belting, we are expected to be able to define it in one sentence. And I just find that really fascinating. It's just so interesting how othered belting is in the voice world. Because again, we see class Western classical as being the norm. Therefore, anything that's not that requires a definition in order to be understood, right? And I just think that that's just a kind of such a fascinating thing. So it doesn't make me mad. I just, I, I've started to kind of notice that. I promise I won't be mad. Um, I've started to notice that like, oh, really interesting. Why are we asking teachers about all the time to define it? Like, why do we have to define it? This is interesting. It can be helpful to define it. I get it. It helps people understand things, but it's complex just like any other singing. I don't want to define classical singing in one sentence. No, and also if we start to put like labels on things, especially when sound is so perceptual, it can get quite confusing to go, okay, I have to push myself into this shape or this pigeonhole or whatever. And uh, so instead, I'm not going to ask that. I I'm going to ask, <laughs> I'm going to ask instead, what is typically going on in the system, mm -hmm. whether that's mechanically, biomechanically, anatomically, acoustically, when it comes to types of belting? I mean, I think that's a complex question that doesn't have a straightforward answer because the reality is that anatomically speaking, we're all a little different. Everybody's voice is going to function slightly differently. You know, some of my research has shown that, that like acoustically things are different to create these sounds that on the outside, everybody would say are belting, right? Um, with the paper that I published a few years back with um, Jared Trudeau and Aaron Johnson, right? We We looked at acoustics right because we were we were really curious what changes acoustically between sort of the middle belt range right the kind of like b flat to d which is where most belt research has focused and then what changes as people go higher like what happened what's the difference between belting an f and a c you know um and you know we had lots of thoughts about what that was going to be and what was really fascinating was that it was all over the place right it was there was no clear strategy right we, we were seeing either the second or the third harmonic leading the show some people, it was the second harmonic the whole time. Some it was the third the whole time. Some it was the second lower, the third higher, the third lower, the second higher. It was all over the place, including three women that had played Alphaba, and they all three did totally different acoustic strategies. So I, I think, you know, we we can't uh, we can't say it has to be this one thing because acoustically we saw differences. Um, what I will say is that you know we certainly see these different strategies: the second harmonic or the third harmonic kind of leading the show. We different definitely saw that in the higher belt, there's more reliance harmonically on the entire spectrum, not just the lower harmonics in the lower belt it was like much more whether it was the second or the third harmonic it was like that was the guy leading the show it was like okay and then there was a pretty steep roll off but as we got higher we saw the we saw the energy a little more equally distributed so it was less about the one or two which which would make sense in how how the, the body the voice works you know i think um I, I think belting is is complex um acoustically we have to sort of you know think about what that is which i just sort of talked about um you know historically they were once said it's a second harmonic second harmonic um but you know i can spike that second harmonic on on voce vista and not be belting right so we can't just look at that okay 
the other thing is we have to think about, um, you know, uh, laryngeal registration or what the vocal folds are doing. You know, we really have to have good vocal fold closure. Um, so we have to really be in that chest voice or mode one or the speech-like mechanism, thicker, heavier, however you want to think about it, right? Everyone uses different language to talk about, you know, a lot of these things, but we have to be in that setup. Then we have to be able to carry that up while also being able to let it lighten up. And that's where it starts to get kind of complicated. Um, one of the things I talk about all the time is like sing, all singing changes as you go higher. Right. So if I sing like, you know, in like a legit soprano -y way, uh, you know, a G5 versus a C6 on an ah vowel, they're going to feel different. They're going to sound different. The pressure feels different. The vowel feels different. The space, the shape, everything feels different, even though I am still in head voice or mode two. You know what I mean? Like it's it's but they're going to be different. It's always different. So belting is no no different. It's going to change as you go higher. Um, and I think that um, that's where it starts to get complicated <laughs> because the shifts that happen higher can really be very individualized. Um, and singers will perceive them differently um, and it will sound different for people. And so I always say that that B flat to D is the, the I call it the belter bridge. And that for me is one of the hardest places to navigate in your belts. And for a couple reasons, one is because that is right where we are sort of in the sort of like the meat of being able to shift up into a higher belt range where it does feel slightly different. And so B flat to D is really where we have to transition. Almost everybody, I'm talking about a higher voice for a lower voice, it would be a little more like an A flat to C ish, maybe G to B depending on the voice, right? But we have these spots where we have to, you know, transition and there's almost always a hated note in there. <laughs> there's almost always a like, if I'm not a C sharp or not a C, yeah. you know, the note that we hate in there. Um, and that is because it's the most unstable because you're trying to transition. But we also have the most options in, in that space, right? B flat to D or like the, you know, again, the G to B, depending. We have the most options in what we can do with laryngeal registration and with acoustic registration, right? With like resonance, you know, or placement or, you know, where we're feeling the sound or how we're shaping the sound. Again, language can be fluid based on how you interpret those things versus what the vocal folds are doing, how heavy, how light, right? How chesty, how heady, how whatever, right? We have the most options in that range. And so that's, I think, why that part gets kind of complicated. Um, but but ultimately, we have to be really connected to that chestier sound. And we have to be able to take it up while letting it get lighter without flipping, right? With being able to resist the flip into something that feels not related, <laughs> but while being able to get lighter and let it transition, it becomes very complicated. And this is where it starts to get super individual as far as like how and where people are and where they are on this and the skill set, right? Like for some people, they do have to flip in their training, right? Because they really have to flip into something that feels mixier while they're coordinating and while they are in transition until it starts to get more connected together. Some people never even realize that they're transitioning into something lighter because it's so smooth and just naturally coordinated. Um, so I think that that's a, that's an important piece. You know, I think the registration, laryngeal registration piece, and then the acoustic piece or the acoustic registration, I think both of those are really important and they interact with each other. Right. And then, you know, perception, if it sounds like a belt it, and it's working for the song, then you're good. You know, and I think that's an important piece too, because like sometimes we do different things in different songs and it's okay. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. something might sound belty, but really feels mixy in one song because of where it sits and what the vowels are. And it's like, okay, you're good. If you're getting the sound you want, then great. And then sometimes we 
aren't getting the sound we want because one of those things might be a little bit off. A student came to me this week actually and was like, I'm doing this and this is a sound, but I feel like it's cheating. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you feel about that word cheat, because as you say, if it sounds like what you're intending to do, but it feels like something else. Yeah, I know what you mean. And that, that happens all the time where people feel like they're they're cheating if they mix. And I, I say all the time is that there is no hierarchy between belting and mixing, right? There's neither one is better than the other. One is green and one is blue. And you just have to paint the picture you want. So if you want, if you are making the sound that you want and it is working for you, it's working for the creative team that you're working with, right? You know, or you're using it in auditions and you always get called back. Do you know what I mean? Like if it's working and you're making the sound you want, um, then it's it's working. And I think people overthink it because when uh, this is something that happens all the time with singers is where we we hear somebody make a sound. We like the sound. We assign, without knowing it, we assign an effort level to that sound, Right. We assume a lot about what it feels like based on how we hear it. And then when we don't feel the things we think we're supposed to feel, <laughs> we assume we're wrong. Yeah. Right. So belting is a gr- is great for this. We hear people belt and we think, oh, man, you know, like, oh, gosh, it's so it's so powerful and big and full. And like we think, oh, I have to have that experience when I'm belting. And for some people, it feels light and easy and effortless. Right. Um, it happens also when people are talking about mixing. I find particularly with men um, that they assume that finding like when they hear somebody giving light qualities higher, they assume it feels really light and easy. And oftentimes it doesn't. Oftentimes it feels like they're walking on a tightrope, you know, and it's like, I have to really be on, right? So it goes for all sorts of things, right? Where we just kind of assume it's going to feel a certain way because of what we hear. And then when we go to learn to make the sounds, we have to sort of recalibrate what it actually feels like in our voice. I remind people all the time, you don't know what that feels like for that alphabet up there. You might assume it feels like heavy and full and big, but it might feel light and effortless. You don't know. So you have to go on your own journey of figuring out what the different sounds feel like but mixing is not cheating if it's what you're wanting to do right if you feel like i can never access a belt quality in certain ranges that is a limitation right so that may be why the mixing thing feels making the mixing choice feels you know off or wrong or like you're cheating because you're not doing the thing you actually want to do right that's a different conversation but when someone is able to do both and they're just choosing to do one, but then they feel like they're cheating. You know, it's like, you're not cheating. You're just making, you're choosing green instead of blue. And like, do you like green? Does green work for you? Then great. Let's do it. Let's make green, you know, because yeah, people immediately think of mixing as cheating. Yeah. Or like belt has to be heavy and powered in some way. And actually in your book, and I'll just hold it up here because I've got my copy. So I feel really smug. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the uh, updated and expanded edition of Nats' series, So You Want to Sing Musical Theatre. And actually, am I allowed to quote something from this? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm terrified what you're going to say, but let's do it. <laughs> so this is in the chapter of um, musical theatre vocal pedagogy, where you say that the, people sometimes think of belting as being only one sound. The reality is, is that there are multitudes of sounds that can fall under the umbrella of belting. Most successful belters can produce a variety of sounds within the context of a belt song. So there isn't just one thing that we're aiming for. We can find a belt sound 
with many different variations applied. For sure. And I think, you know, I think, um, I think that's where we also have to acknowledge, are we talking about a beginning belter? Are we talking about a more advanced belter? Because the more beginning you are, the less access you're going to have to a multitude of sounds, right? Most beginning belters, we have to make pretty big, pretty heavy, pretty loud, pretty open, (laughs) calling, projecting sounds. That is almost always where people need to start. There will always be exceptions to that. But most of the time, like if I have someone who comes in who's never belted, we are going to be loud and heavy and open because that's going to be the way they're going to be able to access it because the acoustic output helps the vocal folds flip into that registration. Does that make sense? As they get more skilled, they start to realize that they can back off. They can actually be a little easier on it. Oh, then we start working on different vowels, right? Can we close the vowel, right, while staying chesty without letting it flip? Because what happens is as soon as we we close a vowel, if we go from, you know, ah to ooh, the ooh immediately wants to flip into head voice. Because again, the acoustic output makes the vocal folds want to go to, to head voice or mode two, right? So we have to be able to resist that. That just takes time and skill. So, you know, I think the more advanced a belter becomes, the more options they have in the world of belts, right? They are able to sort of maintain that chesty connection or that mode one connection. Again, like language is fluid. People get very salty, talking about people getting salty, (laughs) get very salty about language for registration, right? I'm super fluid because different words resonate with different people. And I just, I, you know, whatever you call it, whatever you want. Right. But as long as you know what it is and you can do it and you can identify the sound and you're able to do it and call it whatever you want. Right. But that chesty sound, right. You have to be able to sort of, you know, maintain that. And it is almost always easier for beginning singers to do it big and open. And as you start to get better, you're able to stay in that and let it get lighter and let it get quieter, but you haven't flipped out of it yet, right? Um, and you can close the vowels, you can open the vowels, you can change the resonance, you can do all sorts of things while maintaining that connection. And that starts to give us sort of more middle ground, as I as I typically will say to people, because sometimes in the beginning, it'll feel like I have two choices, and they're pretty far away. I can flip, like I can go really, I can like really change into something like light when I need it to be lighter in the beginning of the song, and then I can go big and loud, right? And so as they get more skilled, we start to build a lot more middle, middle of the road. Um, and when it comes to looking at music, you know, I, I'm t- I tell people all the time, I'm like, where are you like really belting in the song? <laughs> Pick the like couple of spots and the rest of it has to feel different. And it might be that it is in that more closed belt or quiet belt or more speech-like feel that doesn't feel quite like a call, but feels more like a talking, right? People feel it all sorts of different ways, right? For some people, if it's like, you know, feels mixier but still like a chest mix or a speech mix versus like a belt right language again everyone experiences them differently you know I try to give a lot of I know there's a chart in the book where I give like a lot of different ways that people can feel it some people are really connected to the volume or the, the loudness right um, but um, point being, yes, there's a lot of sounds that we can make. And I think that, um, you know, the most skilled belters are giving us that nuance big time. They're giving us tons of nuance in their singing, um, which is which is what makes it exciting because they really go for the big sounds when they need to. Speaking about that there, it seems like we would really benefit from having certain things in place before we start to work on belt or at least work alongside it. So what things do we want in place in a singer really or be working with them to have before belt becomes a little easier? 
I mean, I think, I think, um, I think there's a couple of ways to think about this. One is just always remembering that everyone is different. Sometimes you have people that are fantastic belters and they have very little access to head voice. Um, okay. Um, it happens, right? Um, you know, I think, I think for me, I, uh, in, you know, like a perfect world, <laughs> um, I would love for people to have access to light qualities, right? So, um, this is all voices. I want people to have access to a light quality. I want that falsetto or head voice or mode two to be really stable and clear. Um, I want people to be able to sort of transition back and forth between the two. So I understand that they have control over laryngeal registration, right? Like I can go here and then I can go there and I can go back and I can, I have laryngeal registration at my command, <laughs> right? what I'm doing here. I can do that. Right. And obviously, you know, things that we're always looking for in singers, you know, free of tension, um, you know, not squeezing and bearing down on things, et cetera. Right. Like, you know, that's a very, these are very general terms, but like, that's sort of what I want. I don't need singers to sing classical music or anything like that, you know, before they can belt, but I do need them to be able to access head voice mode two falsetto. Um, I need them to be able to access that. I need them to be able to have, you know, clear, easy chest voice use. Um, I really like for their speaking voice to feel clear. Um, you know, if their speaking voice feels like, um, it has, um, if they have some difficulty accessing clear sounds in their speaking voice, um, that for me is a little bit of an issue because so much of, of, uh, so much musical theater work, which is most of what I do musical theater work, but then also, you know, I do work with recording artists, but even with my recording artists, we're still building from speech, right? Because we're building from communication. Um, and so when the speaking voice isn't clear and they're not able to clear it up, that's something that, you know, I want to work on, I want to really be able to work on speech range and their singing, um, getting that clear, easy, again, not overpressurized. Um, and yeah, I, I want them to be able to control shapes, meaning like acoustic registration. Can I do make different sounds in my falsetto or my head voice? Can I make like, you know, choir boy versus Frankie Valley? Can I make those shifts there? Do I understand how to shift those sounds? Um, uh, you know, and then, and then I want to, want to start working on belting. It's rare that I hold people back from belting. It would be, it's a very rare thing in my studio where I'd be like, you have to be able to do these things before you can belt. Um, I'm, uh, particularly if they're out there auditioning, it's like, I'm not serving them. <laughs> it's like, I'm not helping them. If I'm going, you have to do this. The instances where I do pull people off of belting are when we are really having to retrain something, right. Or if we're talking about injury or post-op work, things like that, then we're going to maybe shy away from any high intensity singing, belting included. Um, and then, um, you know, re-enter into it once we feel like some things are in place. Um, but most of the time we're going to go right into belting because again, sometimes people, they might have issues with some of those things I've already talked about, but their belt is crystal clear and flawless. So like this idea of like, well, everyone has to start here and then build up. Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. I mean, I think theoretically, you know, on paper, but in real life, I just don't think it's that way. For me, I'm much more interested in the voice staying balanced. So I'm much more interested in belting and making sure you're doing these other things as well. And you're stretching your voice this way. You're doing all of that. Include these things in your warm up so that you're always touching base with those things that need, need to stay strong for balance. It's not because I need people to sing rep there. I mean, musical theater singers have to. 
they have to sing everything. But like with my recording artists, I'm like, I don't need you to sing legit music, but you're going to do head voice and falsetto in your warm up. You're always going to stretch up. You're going to make those shapes and sounds for the balance of the instrument, being able to adjust the laryngeal position, being able to adjust the shapes and in the mouth and the throat, being able to control laryngeal registration, all of that. I need you to be able to do, even if you never sing a head voice song in the world. (laughs) I don't need to do that. I wondered if for this last section of our discussion, if we could explore belting in musical theatre in its variation a little bit more and discuss it with in in alignment with time period and and genre. So starting with something like standard Broadway or traditional belt. And so by this, I mean sounds that grow out of Timpan Alley and things that we might hear from characters like Ada Annie singing I Can't Say No from Oklahoma, Princess Winifred in Once Upon a Mattress when she sings Shy and Happily Ever After, and Frank Butler in Annie Get Your Gun who sings I'm a Bad, Bad Man. So these are all kind of like very speechy, sounds and from my view don't necessarily go too much or much higher than like a d5 around that sort of area so what's what's the vocal aesthetic that we'll be looking at and do you have a particular approach specifically for this style that's an interesting question and an interesting sort of like topic I think that most traditional musical theater, we really see people belting between B flat and D. You know what I mean? Like that is really the belt zone. Um, We, um, yeah, you know, and and this is mostly women that are belting B flat to D. You know, I think men, um, when it comes to belting in these lower voices, these testosterone influenced voices, no matter their gender identity, I think it's, um, it is, it's a little bit more acoustic than it is registration only because that is how those voices sing, right? They, they, they don't go to falsetto often. We go all the time in, in higher voices, right? So the lower voices don't, right? So for them, it is much more about learning how to play with acoustics or pronunciation of the words or shapes again however you want to conceptualize it but it's less about what's going on at the vocal fold level and more about what's going on above it because it, it, you know singing a, a an a5 or an a4 sorry legit or belted is really just a matter of like how you're going to say the word <laughs> and what shape and pronunciation and vowel you're going to choose more so than it is the vocal fold level. Does that make sense? Um, and so with, you know, these sort of lower voices in traditional musical theater, they were all very speechy and all still kind of legit up top and like a little bit of, you know, they weren't really like belting, belting in the way that they do in contemporary musical theater back in the day. Um, higher voices though, they were belting, right? Because they were going, oh, we can do that. We can take our chest voice up and make these noises and figure that out. You know, the music used to sit between B flat and D um, typically, you know, um, and those were typically the money notes. We see a lot of like Bs and Cs. Um, and I think part of that is, I mean, I'm, you know, we, we could we could go on like a history deep dive, but we were looking at um, unamplified singing at this time, right? They were not amplified. So it was in a range where they could really connect to being nice and weighty and full and projecting their voice. Um, as things went on and we started to have amplification, obviously people started going higher um, because they could and they didn't have to project their voice out. Um, I think when it comes to working with singers on on this type of music, I don't know that there's necessarily an aesthetic goal that is sort of unified. And, and what I mean by that is 
it depends on the context because almost always when we revive older musicals on Broadway, we almost always sing slightly more contemporary. Every once in a while, we'll have something that is really true to how it used to be done. But that's pretty rare these days because, you know, even in our legit musicals, we're hearing more straight tone. We're hearing more like even though it's still legit soprano singing, I'm straight toning more. I'm maybe scooping up a little. I'm maybe opening some vowels brighter than maybe I would. Right. Not always. Sometimes people stay pretty true to it. But we almost always contemporize things just a teeny bit in the vocals. So that is where context, I think, would matter. Is this a big revival where, you know, we know that they're probably open and willing to that. Is this a regional theater production where it's pretty straight to the books and we need, you know what I mean? We need like a pretty straightforward traditional sound. You know, I think, I think that tells us how much people can sort of play in the room with what they're going to do and what type of sounds that they're going to make. Sometimes when singers are really used to singing contemporary music, they struggle with older musical musicals. They struggle when the money notes are C's and C sharp or B's, right? They'd much rather be higher um, because once you get through that belter bridge and you get up, it's it uh, very often feels easier for belters. Not always, but very often it's easier. It's like, let me stay up. This is why belters riff up. This is why they option up. We think it's because they're trying to be crazy, but like because it often feels easier and that is sometimes blows people's mind, but they'd rather go up than come down, right? One of the hardest parts of Elphaba is the C at the end of Wizard and I. Nobody wants to sit on that C. Everybody goes flat because it's like, you know, it's like right in the meat and it gets too heavy and big and open. So I find sometimes when I'm working on traditional stuff with singers, we have to get them weightier. They're too light, (laughs) right? They're too like pinging and light. And I'm like, you got to have some weight in this. And so we start to focus on exercises where they can learn how to control that control the vocal folds basically how closed or open are they how heavy are they how much pressure are they putting on the system right um and so i don't even know if i'm answering your question because i've sort of like veered off into some forest that might might not be anywhere related to your question but um but yeah i i think it's you know i think it's an interesting question i i try to not be in charge of aesthetic what I mean by that is I want my singers to be able, the, the singers that I work with, I want them to be able to choose their aesthetic. So my job is to present options and to make sure they feel skilled in a lot of different choices so that they can then make the choices they want to make. Did I answer your question remotely? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's interesting to know like how you would like approach it in terms of we know it's going to be a bit more like speech like so how do we sure. how do we allow someone to feel that in their own experience yeah for sure and i think i think you know um having exercises that tap into that um uh, you know i i think a, an exercise that i use a lot and it's in the book and it's what i call the crescendo decrescendo exercise is essentially a messa de voce but specifically targeting laryngeal registration and targeting the shifts and that's an exercise i use all the time in kind of the meaty range of the belt because it helps singers go on an exploration of what different laryngeal registration choices feel like in that range and it helps them click into something that is chestier, heavier, fuller, beltier in that range. So that's an exercise that I use a lot when people aren't quite getting there, when they're sort of stuck in something that's kind of like a bright mixy quality and they haven't really crossed over. Um, I use that exercise a lot. And if you use that exercise and somebody's tendency is to like be able to tap into the strength element, but then when they start to lower the volume, they, ah, 
crack out and it becomes very light. Does that mean then, okay, we need to strengthen that element of stuff? Certainly can. I think, I think in that exercise that I do, right, just for, for the listeners, <laughs> it's, you know, we essentially start really quiet and head voice, you crescendo through head voice, and eventually you can't get any louder and you have to shift the vocal folds in order to get louder and you shift into something chestier, heavier, however you think about it, and you get louder and then you decrescendo back. What I will say is that everybody has a direction that's easier. Right. Some people are way better ascending than descending. And some people are better descending than ascending. And so this exercise is essentially descending to ascending. Right. We start in head voice and then we are falsetto. We go to full voice and we come back. Right. So we are going from higher to lower and then back. So essentially it's a top down exercise. Right. So it is sort of starting from a light place and working into something heavy from the light place. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. And so it can point out all sorts of things, right. Which can be like the fact that it goes from something like, you know, um, you know, very in tune to something very not in tune because it sort of like overpressurizes as it gets heavy. Right. It exposes tons of things. Um, and so very often people are worse coming back. <laughs> and so coming back, they have way less control. It's way bigger of a break, all of those types of things. Also, just because you start quiet and get loud when you are when you are coming back, right? When you are decrescendoing on that exercise, you're at the end of the breath cycle. We can't ignore that. You know, sometimes if people are really struggling with that, I will tell them to separate the exercise, you know, crescendo, get loud, stop, try to come back in on that sound, you know, to, after you take a breath and then, and then decrescendo. But I do like it to be in one one breath. Um, but it really, really exposes a lot about belting in such a good way because you, I learn, because I use it sometimes just as a diagnostic tool. If I can't quite tell what someone's doing, if I'm a little like, mm, what is that voice doing? It will expose it all. <laughs> It'll tell me everything. Mm. And it's great. Yeah. So what about the more like contemporary pop rock sort of stuff where, as you've mentioned before, that it's going to get a bit higher and that sometimes is people's sweet spot. It feels a bit easier. But we're looking at things like uh, the jukeboxes like Jagged Little Pill or shows like Six and Lizzie. How do we allow the sound to continue to be big, however you want to describe it, like got some meat, sorry, vegans, vegetarians. (laughs) I don't know what it is for you, some tofu. or something it's got something in the sound that doesn't feel disconnected higher up what's your strategy there so i think it's important that we separate function from style um something i'm telling i tell people all the time i should put it on like a coffee mug is lead with function follow with style right and i say this because again in the world of well, really the world of all singing. I mean, we need our voice to, to be there for us. So even with a recording artist who is like not singing eight shows a week, like they need their voice to be there and be consistent. They need to be able to get on stage and have their voice be there the whole gig, right? They need their voice to be there the next gig. You know what I mean? They need some sort of consistency. So function has to be a big part of what we talk about. But then with musical theater, obviously eight shows a week is not for the faint of heart. And so you you really have to lead with function. So I think some of these, I think your question has sort of two ways of thinking about it. One is we have to think of the function. Functionally speaking, how is somebody navigating through their belt, right? When we don't really have style on it, we just are making sound, right? And that's where exercises are helpful because we're not 
really stylizing them yet. Um, and, uh, you know, we could, of course, identify, you know, a, a style that the sound would naturally fall into, but we're not adding in things like grit and growl, right? And different things like that. We're just saying, how am I navigating through it? That for me is where that B flat to D is like crucial, super, super crucial. It's the hardest part in the belt because you have to be able to navigate through it. I can't get I can't get light too quick and I can't be too heavy. I have to really be able to travel through B flat to D or again, G to B or A flat to C ish lower. I find it to be slightly more variable with lower voices. That's just my experience, right? that's not based on anything except what I see. Um, you know, uh, it's that B flat to D range. It's so hard. It's so crucial. People have to be able to get through it and they have to be able to go back and forth with it. So I do exercises all the time where people are like starting higher and having to navigate through <laughs> down to the lower. And some of these are in the book too, right? Where you're having to kind of noodle through, right? So your top note might be an F and your bottom notes a B flat. Those are totally different. And you're having to navigate through shifting in there. So that's function-based, right? We are talking about functional skills of being able to find what that higher belt is. Um, that is such a, like, I was just having this conversation this week with with an actress who um, is getting ready to do a new off-Broadway show. And, you know, we've been sort of exploring beltier qualities because she has a tendency to shy away from them a little bit. She kind of feels safer mixing, but like the song is, the some of the songs are really requiring that and she's eager to do it, but, you know, is a little like, ooh, right? And it still feels a little you know, again, she's better, higher. The E flats and Fs are great because she knows where that goes, but then it feels disconnected from the lower. This is like the story every week in my voice studio, right? It's the hardest thing. So making people kind of have to navigate through that helps them find that higher belt that really just feels different. I mean, most people that that really belt up there, they'll be like, yeah, belting an F feels different than mixing an F. But belting an F also feels different than belting a B flat. And that's yeah. what makes people's head explode, particularly when you're trying to learn it because you're like, well, my F feels really mixy. It's like, yeah, that's okay. You're in transition. <laughs> you don't have it yet. Well, eventually, the more you can get yourself ping-ponging back and forth between the middle belt range where things are heavier and beltier and the higher belt range where things are are a little lighter, everything will start to mesh together more and you will start to feel more connected. Um, and I think that that makes people's brain hurt a little bit. Um, but it it really does happen when people click into it and all of a sudden it's there for them. It's like, oh, I feel that. That is different. That is not bright head voice, but it is not as heavy as I was lower. And it becomes this like magical, like aha thing. Again, some people naturally do it. They are born doing it. You know what I mean? But for many people, they have to learn. Then we have to talk about style. So when you talk about something like Jagged Little Pill, now we're saying, okay, how do I use my voice stylistically, right? What are the style elements? Well, first of all, what are the functional choices I make that are in line with that style, right? And then what are the stylistic elements that I put on top of it? Am I growling? Am I using grit? How heavy or how light am I based on stylistically what the song is? So I think that's a really important factor when we're talking about belting is thinking about function and style, right? Sometimes style helps function, right? Sometimes if I do something stylistically, it helps me functionally, right? So like, you know, when I say lead with function, follow with style, it doesn't mean well, there are times when style helps the function. But oftentimes what I find just a little more commonly is that style is leading people astray, right? They are so focused on the vibe <laughs> that they are forgetting to, to make the sound. And then all of a sudden it's like, why does it feel throaty and weird? And it's like, well, we need to eliminate all the style, just make clean, clear, clear sound, assess where that is and then stylize it from there. Mm. 
And when you talk about the fact that the sound has to lighten as it gets higher, like how much of that is like twang? When we're talking about weight, we're talking about the vocal folds, right? Which is not twang, right? So we're talking about, we're talking about what happens to your vocal folds as you go higher in pitch, they stretch and they get thinner, right? Okay. So when I'm belting and I'm going higher, what's happening to my vocal folds? They're stretching and they're getting thinner. They have to, but I have to let them get thinner without flipping into a different mode of vibration. Does that make sense? Right? So if I am not able to maintain enough closure that I am chesty while stretching and thinning, thinning the vocal folds, right? What happens is we get the big, uh, the big yodel right into the sort of like, you know, sound right where all of a sudden i'm in a totally different vocal fold vibration does that make sense so i have to be able to sort of stretch that stretch the vocal folds while maintaining enough closure that it sounds belty and then the higher i go the more stretched out they get and they just get lighter and lighter and light do you know what i mean and your belt just keeps going this is why some people i know mary saunders barton says this is like my belt just keeps going till i run out of notes which is right because eventually you've just maintained the right amount of closure with stretch that you're still kind of in what feels like a similar setup. Does that make sense? That is purely regi laryngeal registration. Twang is acoustic registration, right? I find that in my work, I am most of the time trying to get people out of such bright sounds. Almost everybody is overly brightened and they're trying to do so much brightness and like twang or nasality or any of, however you want to think about these things, because everyone interprets them all a little differently. But, you know, people, I find that people are often so overly going in that direction that they've lost the laryngeal piece. Does that make sense? Right. Again, it's a balance of all singing is a balance of laryngeal registration and acoustic registration, right? Or like registration or, you know, weight of the vocal folds and like placement or what, however you want to think about it. It's a balance of those two things. And so I think that when people are leaning into the world of like twang and sort of like the brighter qualities, it can cause the vocal folds to lighten up a little bit. But what I have found is that most people come in and they're too light and they're too twangy and they're too bright. And it's like, because that was sort of, again, when we look at belting from a Western classical perspective, the thing that people, when their ear is attuned to Western classical singing, they will talk about belting being so bright. It's so, bright. it's so bright. It's such a bright sound. And I'm like, is I don't really think it's that bright. Like certainly when we're belting high, there's a lot of like ping to that. There are certainly character choices that are pingy. There are certainly moments where it is, but like I find that I'm trying to get people more balanced and less, eh. does that make sense? Yeah. So what would be an example of an exercise that you would use? You've mentioned your mesa de voce and you've mentioned coming yeah. down and going back and forth over that kind of tricky part what sort of exercise would you use to to keep a little bit of that laryngeal registration whilst allow allowing the the chords to thin as you ascend well honestly that crescendo decrescendo exercise i would certainly still use yeah because it is essentially going back and forth you know between all of that and as you are getting quieter it is lightning right so like essentially as we get a little quieter everything is lightening up a little bit right and that, that exercise has to go very slow um because the slower you go through those transitions the better coordinated those transitions become um but honestly i i just i take people high <laughs> um in their belt um and i always tell them that when you hit a spot that feels wobbly and wiggly it's a door not a ceiling um it's not this top right when it starts to crack and feel weird it's a door not a ceiling so keep 
keep going. Um, and I say that because I always want to see what's on the other side. I want to see how coordinated the sort of higher thing is, because that clues me in a lot to how we're how that transition work is going to go. Um, there certainly are people that come in that are way too heavy and like, huh, and woofy. But I just find that these days it's way less than it was like 15 years ago for me. And I think that's just because everyone belts so high these days. Pop music is high belting. All musical theater is doing it. You know, singers are coming in knowing how to access the high stuff, but not necessarily the the root of it. Always, always exceptions to that. There will always be someone who comes in that is too heavy, in which case I will do brighter, lighter stuff for them. So, for instance, there's a witch cackle exercise in the book, right, which is something that people, you know, are sort of used to hearing, which is sort of the like, yeah that type of thing i certainly will do that with people that are um you know needing something like that but i don't start there and i know many teachers do and that's not wrong or bad that's just you know we we all have to work with the, the singers that show up in front of us and i'm in new york city working with professional singers so that is a different world than let's say if you're working with teenagers who are probably coming in and being way too heavy and heavy and screamy and you're you're needing to lighten them up and get them into some experiencing resonance in some way right so um, again, all approaches can be valid and, and can work. Um, I think we are served as teachers when we learn a lot of different approaches, because then we're, we have a lot of things at our disposal, so that when a singer comes in who might need something different than maybe what you normally do, you you have some resources to pull from. Yeah, definitely. I was going to ask you about mix belt, but I think looking at uh, how much time we have left, <laughs> that's a bit of a one to cover. But what would you yeah, kind of say to the, about yeah. that? I mean, I think, I think like my, my question is always, what do you mean? Like, what does that mean to you? Like, yeah. so like, what do you mean when you say mixed belt? So for me, and I know it's, it's that whole perceptual thing again, I uh -huh. would say like a mixed belt for me is something that I'd listen to in Little Women or Anastasia, where it's not quite what I would expect stylistically from a contemporary piece like Dear Evan Hansen, but it's got... It hasn't got the kind of loftier qualities of a legit. It's kind of contemporary legit or and, and it has a little bit of something behind it. Sure. And so, you know, everyone would answer that question differently because sometimes when people are talking about mixed belt, they're talking about that higher belt range once it gets through and they're like, oh, yeah, Elphaba is doing mixed belting. Right. You know, everyone defines that differently. Right. So, you know, it's a little like at any time we start talking about mixing, we are talking about. Um, everyone has a different, everyone has a different opinion of what that is, a different definition of what that is. Like it is not un universally understood in the same way. And I, I say that because we sort of speak about it as if it was, you know what I mean? We'll be like, oh, hey, mixing, blah, blah. And we, we sort of like throw the word out in our, in our studios and in our life as if it is like the most common understood thing. It's not. Everyone means something different, right? So sometimes when people say mixed belt, they're talking about that higher belt range, right? Where it feels a little different. Um, fine. You can, you can use that language, you know, you use it in a specific way where you're like, oh yeah, it feels like kind of chesty, but it's not big and heavy. Right. And it, it kind of feels like effortless. Right. You know, we can use it in a lot of different ways. I think for me, I find that 
and again, this is not all the time, but this is like a common thing is that if I use the word mix, when I'm talking about belting, singers will almost always flip into something that's lighter than what we want. So if we can say, okay, th this is all a belt, but like the higher belt is different than the middle range of the belt, right? Once you get up to those notes, the belting is different. You know, maybe it feels like a mixed belt and that language resonates with that singer. Great. Maybe it feels like a higher belt. Maybe it just feels like a more narrowed belt, like whatever language resonates with them, as long as they understand that it's a belt and it's different than mixing. It's different than flipping into something mixier. I think some of the sounds you're talking about for me, from my perspective, are all again, all in the world of belting, but it's about the control of the things we were talking about earlier, about nuance, about being able to close the vowel, being able to be in more of like a speechy setup, right? Versus opening it up to a belt, right? Something that might feel more like a speech mix or feel like a quieter belt or feel like a more narrowed belt again. However, how language is is language, and everyone feels things differently. And then culturally, we all use language differently. Um, and so, you know, I, I try not to get locked into a lot of language, which is why I ask people to define things all the time because it's like I want to know what sounds you're talking about um, because that helps me understand what what you mean. So for me, those types of things, right, um, come come from exploring the bell and having tons of control through all of those nuances. I also think people all sing that rep differently. You know, I think the past is going to be different in every voice. It's going to be mixier in some, it's going to be beltier in others. You know, it's just going to be lighter in some, heavier in others. And I think that's okay. I think we have to, we have to make more room in musical theater for variability and less recreating. And just full disclosure, journey to the past is just a bitch in my voice. What? <laughs> Nobody, so nobody wants those, and no one wants that, and no one wants those last notes on "In My Dreams." Do you know what I mean? It's like it's so hard. It's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, you're right. Like if someone's a really good like you know mixy mixer, and they can like lock into like a great strong heady mix, it's like home free for them. And if they, you know, but what happens is it gets too heavy and splatty for most people because it feels big and it's like hey, that should be a little more narrowed and that's where the work on the nuance comes in being able to control the weight being able to control the foul being able to control the size right the resonance all of those things gives people more options and what they're going to do on those notes uh yeah do you ever look at Rob's work and are like, oh, don't put that vowel there? <laughs> he does ask me things because, you know, he'll just write things like in his own range, obviously, yeah. because that's what feels good. And then he will have me come in and he'll be like, what key should I put this in? You know, and I'll sing through something and be like, you should take that up. Like, if you want a bell D, put the notes there. And I was like, you know, I always tell him, I'm like, it's going to depend on the voice. But generally speaking, that's probably the more of the range to go to. So certainly does call upon me for that <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh Amanda it's been so awesome to chat what what sort of other pedagogues and resources would you encourage us to check out particularly on this topic of belting and musical theater oh belting well you know Mary Saunders Barton is always a wealth of knowledge um and and she has a great book you know um uh, cross training in the voice studio with Norman Spivey which is just a wonderful book lots of good resources there um you know I think I think she is just you know a, a wonderful wealth of knowledge and definitely a trailblazer um on on um, belting and she has a lot of resources. I think she has some, you know, some online resources that you can, you can purchase from her. You know, I think there's a, a lot of great like online resources. You know, I have courses on belting if people want to come and explore that more. 
obviously your organization has, you know, online courses. There's lots of other people. The New York Singing Teachers Association has great online online courses. Um, and, you know, I think there are there are lots of places to go and find that. But um, I, I definitely recommend um, Mary's book. I think we need more. We need more books out there because there's just not as many. And books are certainly um, a great, easy resource for people to sort of get their hands on and be able to consume. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I um, certainly uh, recommend people come over and find me and, you know, we can belting together. But um, yeah, I, I think um, my book obviously talks a lot about belting, but it's, it's more musical theater singing in general, which belting is a big piece. Um, yeah. So where can people find you and check out your work and get in touch with you? Sure. My website is amandaflynnvoice.com um, and you can contact me there. Um, there are links to all my courses there um, and you can find me on social media, Amanda Flynnie, F-L-Y-N-N-I-E, uh, just my name with an I-E at the end. Um, you can find me on, on Instagram there or TikTok. Come and find me anywhere. <laughs> Brilliant. Amanda Flynn, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.